Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. I'm welcoming to the the show today someone who I have followed for, I want to say, about two years now. Uh, She is someone that I consider to be one of my teachers, someone that I follow and listen to um, with regards to the yoga practice. Um, As many of you know, I'm a yoga teacher, but I consider myself more of a yoga student and that there's a whole story behind that. But all of that to say, when I began really seeking South Asian leadership in particular, really wanting to listen to South Asian voices with regards to ways to honor yoga, I found our guest and welcome Susanna Barkataki. Uh, so happy to be here with you, Tina. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for agreeing to have this conversation with me. I would love to share with our audience about you, but instead of me reading your bio, how do you describe the way that you show up in the world and the work that you do? Yeah, I see myself as a yoga unity and equity activist. And since that core value is what really drives my work, my work shows up in different ways. And so sometimes it might look like, you know, making a provocative post on Instagram or writing a blog or in, you know, recent months writing a book. And sometimes it may show up in direct action. We're running a teacher training that's really going in depth and honoring the roots of yoga. So the form changes, you know, but it's kind of generally in the realm of education, activism, culture shift, systems change. Um, Sometimes you might find me in the streets, you know, or or doing direct, direct action work, direct service work with different communities where I live in unceded Seminole land in Orlando, Florida. So the what changes, but the why and the purpose behind it really is always the same. It's my goal is to create more unity with the vehicle of yoga. And that's a beautiful way to explain that, that your work kind of changes really, right? Depending on what's going on and what the situation is calling for. So can you share with us a little bit of your background, including your identity and what what is your heart for yoga and what tell us about your heart for this conversation about honoring yoga? Where does that come from? Yes. Um, so I am mixed. I'm Indian and British. I was born in England. My father is from Assam. My mother is from England and she's white and my father is Indian. And they met at a time when, you know, Indians and British people did not barely even talk to each other except if they had to or for work purposes and when they certainly didn't marry and if they did marry they would adopt they wouldn't have their own children and so that context of separation of racism of you know their whole lives being shaped by a social context that said they never should have been together and that my brother and I should never have been born has really shaped my life you know and So I love the title of your podcast, Speaking of Racism. I said this to my partner actually last night. We were doing those, I don't know if you've seen those 36 questions that deepen a relationship. So we were doing those. And one of the questions was, you know, if you could change anything about your upbringing, what would it be? 
And I've been lucky, you know, in, in some ways I've been very lucky and other ways uh, it's been a challenge, like having to move from England to the U.S. because of violence against us based on race. That wasn't so lucky. But my family is, despite it all, very my immediate family, very warm and loving. But the thing I realized when I was talking to him, you know, on our quarantine date, um, it was I... I wouldn't change a lot, but I would have wished I had someone to talk to about race, about power, about inequity, about sexism and patriarchy, because there never was a time when these forces didn't impact my life. They were already at play in my life before I was born. The moment I was born, the fact that my parents couldn't find anyone to marry them, that, you know, like certain members of the family wouldn't come to uh, to their wedding or even show up once I, I did appear, you know? And, and all of those things have shaped who I am and, and how I come into the conversation. And so part of that journey for me, you know, when we moved from England to the United States, in part kind of as basically refugees fleeing violence against us, but also like many immigrants for the promise of a better life. My dad, who's Indian, um, he really had to assimilate and like so many folks of color do or try to do in order to survive. And so they would give us the message, give me the message, like, just be American, you know, and it was so confusing because I clearly wasn't just American. I was hearing, you know, at three, four, five from the kids on the block, go home, you're the bad guy, like you're ugly or, you know, all of those things. And so it just, there was a lot of internalized uh, racism and a lot of internalized oppression. And so for me, growing up, I felt like everything Indian was bad. Everything Indian was somehow, you know, somehow like shameful, you know, the food we ate, kids would make fun of me. Um, it was a really, really hard time full of a lot of self-hate. And now, you know, knowing what I know and knowing what you and some of your listeners might know, it's like, well, that wasn't just about me and my problems and my insecurities. Um, yeah, sure. Like many of us, I was an insecure and shy kid, but there were whole other systemic levels of oppression going on. And so when I finally realized this, I don't know, maybe in like, basically it took me through college to understand and, and going back, I moved back to LA after college and I taught in a high school. And during that time of, and I taught other immigrants, right. From all over the world, from, you know, Central America, South America, Africa, Europe, and I realized my goal as a teacher was to empower them as best I could to survive and thrive in, you know, we called it like the United States, um, like the nightmare of the American dream and the American nightmare. And I needed to help equip them as best I could with how to succeed. But in doing that, I realized, oh, I've been hating on my own roots and my own, you know, sense of where I come from all this time, not even realizing that there's so much magic and there's so much power in that. And so I really came to yoga or back to yoga through racism, right? Like I came to reclaiming my roots through how much I had suffered from where my roots are. And that's part of why I'm so passionate about all of the work of connecting yoga and social justice is it's a perfect vehicle, not just for someone like me who is Indian, but also for all of us to do that self-exploration and self-inquiry and then empowerment of ourselves so we can also empower others. 
And so I think that's such a beautiful um, description of, of what led you to be on the path that you're on now as a teacher, as an educator, as a, as a facilitator, as someone who uses your voice to help folks connect the dots between yoga and social justice. Um, and that's how I came to know about you and your work. And so I would love to kind of bring our audience in to basically consider what they know and see in regards to yoga here in the States today. When we think about yoga, what is the image that comes to mind? If we close our eyes and think of someone practicing yoga in a yoga studio, what does that person look like? What does the yoga studio look like? How much does it cost? All of these things. Um, my background is that I got my 200 hour yoga teacher certification through a gym, in a gym setting, through a, a fitness corporation. And so in teaching yoga and in being in corporate gym settings and spaces where that is what I knew yoga to be, there was always a part that felt disconnected that I couldn't put my finger on it. And I continued to move in those, I'm air quoting, you can't see me, those yoga spaces um, in a very conflicted and incomplete way. Um, but I didn't have language for what it was. And I didn't understand. Um, I didn't understand, I think, so much about yoga, the practice, uh, the roots of yoga. Uh, and it would only happen when I observed, and I talk about this a lot, um, how I was affected when I watched the videos of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile being killed and how that broke me. It shifted everything in my life and in my world. I would then go back to these uh, corporate yoga studios and settings, feeling completely disconnected and very much out of my body, um, very confused as to why um, it, nobody seemed to be caring about what was happening in the world. No one seemed to be caring about Black life, really. And all of that to say, I, I continue to feel honestly more oppressed because of the yoga practice that I was a part of that didn't seem to see me, acknowledge me, and I just didn't feel um, that I was, uh, that I had worth and value in this practice. Um, and so I think that's, and that's how I found you as I began to kind of search, like I was saying earlier. So can you set the stage and, and, and explain what is the connection between yoga and social justice? Yes, absolutely. And I first want to just like highlight for folks who are listening, you know, it's so painful when the world around us is crumbling and no one acts like it's happening. And I think that's what it's like to be a person of color, but in particular, a black person in the United States, like Tina, you just shared, right? Like, how does that feel when your, your people, your community is under siege by the state and then you go into a place, a community that's all about healing and peace and they don't bring it up? Like that yeah. is not okay. You know, that is a complete breakdown of what a system of well-being and wellness and healing should be doing. And, you know, I have to say, like, just because I say that and I feel very passionately about it. When I first began teaching, I didn't know enough. Um, and this is actually just teaching high school, not yet teaching yoga. I didn't know enough exactly about how to hold 
the, you know, the truth and the tensions and the suffering and the pain of the world. Like I was teaching English, uh, ESL and philosophy. And in my second week, I believe it was, because I started mid-year. No, it was my second week of teaching at all. Um, September 11th, the attacks in New York happened. Mm -hmm. And I was 21. I was a brand new teacher. I had a class of, you know, 40, like six classes of, of 40 students. And the word from on high was don't talk about it. The word from our superintendent, the word from our principal was don't talk about it. And the attacks happened at nine that morning. I heard it right, you know, right as I was going in to teach my first class at second period. And looking back, you know, I, I didn't, I went in, I taught my lecture on philosophy on, you know, Plato or Zeno or whoever I was teaching on and did some literature, some liter teaching on literature. And I left school that day, you know, feeling, feeling obviously like in shock from processing everything happening with the attacks, but also like I had failed as a teacher in some way. And you know, looking back now, I can be gentle with myself and say like, you know, a little baby teacher, Susanna, you didn't know, you didn't know enough, but you did know enough to know that that didn't feel right. And so from that day, I made a commitment that when there were um, traumas or sufferings in our world and our community, that I was going to trust the classroom to, uh, to help hold that tension and actually empower each of us, all of us together to try to address and solve the problems uh, as best as we could. And so in later years, you know, whether I was teaching high school or elementary school even, I would always bring up uh, police brutality with our students because I felt like it was part of my moral responsibility, especially as a non-Black person, to not in any way like glamorize or try to um, try to like put this in their faces in some sort of um way like that, but more like, let's see how we can share our humanity, students who, some whom have privilege, some who don't, like, let's address this. What can we do? What are the things that have caused this? And I believe deeply that our healing spaces, our wellness spaces, yoga spaces, we need to be engaging in that. Um, and so now I'll get to your question and say why, but I just felt so touched by you sharing that. So, um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yoga really inherently is actually a science of social justice. And it's hard to, to always see that. You know, obviously it's, it's changed and transformed over the years. And, um, and, when we, and I say over the years, so we're talking like thousands of years. And it's been used in different ways or embraced in different ways. But when you take some of the foundation of what yoga is, right? And yoga comes from the, the root word yuj, which means unity or to yoke, unite or connect. Yoga is about everything that creates unity. And anything that creates separation is not yoga. And so when we're in a context of systemic oppression, of power, of racism, of sexism, all of those isms which you know can feel really impersonal sometimes when I, when we say like racism or like racist it feels like oh that's not me i'm not a racist but the thing is we're all living in a system that puts white life and white joy above um, which you know is no fault of each individual white person on your own it's a system and so all of us are harmed by that and and folks of color are harmed in much greater numbers and so 
because of that, all of the things we just sort of do or take part in are actually in some way creating or contributing to, or maybe contributing to separation. And so part of what it means to practice yoga is look around. Well, who isn't in the studio? Who aren't the teacher's platforms? I love that visualization you took us through of like, who's not there, right? Who's not in the space? And could the veterans, could the teenagers, you know, I'm talking about my community here, you all listening can think of your community, those who aren't there, could the, you know, court involved folks, could the teen parents, could, you know, trans folks, larger body folks, these are all people who are not in our yoga community in Orlando, and they're certainly not in leadership in general in the yoga community. Could they all benefit from yoga? Absolutely. Could it create more healing, more unity, more peace in their lives and therefore the lives of our entire um, neighborhood and, and world here? Yes, right? And so yoga inherently is a science of social justice. Now, I love to kind of break that down. And, and um, in the book that I mentioned, I break it down into four sections, this, this science. And the science is one that looks at separation. In order to get to unity, we have to actually look at what's separating us. So we need to explore what are these things? What is cultural appropriation? What is you know, spiritual bypass, all of these different issues we have to look at in ourselves, um, as well as just in the world, and then reflect what is my part, where do I exist on, you know, the power continuum and, and different relationships and hierarchies, and how is this at play in my life, and then reconnect, reunite, come back to the practice of yoga through action, and then the final really step on the science of social justice is liberation, right? Social justice and yoga have the same aim. When you look at the eightfold path of yoga, there's eight steps, which um, I'll break down in a second. But the final one is samadhi. And samadhi means liberation. And they're not, you know, the yogis weren't playing around. Like they really mean liberation. And social justice, the same aim, is liberation and equity for all. And so that alone is, is where we're all heading and yoga gives us these tools, um, the the April path, which I'll, I'll break down now. The first step is yoga ethics, then inner yogi codes, the yamas and niyamas, asana, the physical practice, what many of us know, but yoga is so much more than that. Pranayama, the breath, pratyahara, focus, like focusing our senses, not allowing ourselves to be completely distracted. Um, dharana, mindfulness. Dhyana, meditation, and then finally samadhi. And so there's this whole elaborate, codified, and very specific system of how to get to liberation. And so we have such a privilege, you know, to, to those of us, anyone who's experienced yoga, or if you haven't, and you're curious about it, when you practice the full expanse of it, you're really like signing up for a, a crash course on personal empowerment, community empowerment, and how to bring equity and justice to the world. No big deal, right? <laughs> exactly. Very easy. Well, <laughs> it's interesting. I think about so many folks and white folks in particular who practice yoga. And when I explain uh, a little bit about how yoga is more than the postures and the poses, more than the asana, which is um, one of those limbs that you just referenced um, as a part of the eightfold path of yoga. It, it almost seems like 
it's weird for them. It's weird because what we understand in Western culture and in our society of, of white supremacies and the ways that yoga has been marketed is that it's about, it's a workout. Yoga is a workout. People go to yoga classes to get a yoga butt. You've got to wear the certain clothes. All at the, There are brand names associated with yoga, right? When we think about going to yoga class, there is certain folks have access to it. Others don't. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Why, when we close our eyes and think about yoga, do we have an image? And yet what you are sharing about this, the totality of what yoga is and the unity and the liberation, samadhi. Can you talk about how we got here? I mean, the short answer is colonialism. (laughs) Uh, Colonialism being a system of oppression, right? That is when a controlling or more dominant country comes in, um, dominates, occupies, settles, and exploits the natural resources, um, cultural and indigenous wealth of a the, the non-dominant you know, place or community or, or country. And because the British had done economic and then political colonization of India, the way that yoga has come to us is through that lens of colonization. And during colonization, there was a story uh, because if you just kind of pause for a second and think about, well, how does a mechanism of colonization work? A smaller number of people goes to like a whole huge country, you know, or continent even. And that smaller number of people somehow gains control over that larger number of people. Well, some of that is by military strength and by gunpowder, you know, like um, armed force. But the other thing that has to be in play is narrative, is story. And that smaller group of people needs to tell a story that makes the uh, the other group feel inferior. They need to justify their domination and they need to um, basically ensure assent to the domination by making the group feel like, oh, we're, you're better off, like you couldn't do this anyway. And the sad part is there's still, you'll still hear people saying, oh yes, India is better for British colonization. And it's like, really, you know, really, <laughs> they think that, but you know, it's internalized depression even today. And so the story that the British told, and this was a very pervasive story of, you know, probably nobody listening looks back at colonial literature from, from the empire, the British empire, but I do look at that stuff because I'm kind of a, a nerd about all of this and I'm interested in it. And it's actually, I have to be very careful what I read and when I choose to read, I have to be internally prepared because the the narratives are so um, disempowering, right? That Indians are weak, Indians are feeble, um, Indians are savage. You know, it's it's not surprising. It's the same story that's used for every bid for power that has ever happened, but it's still painful and harmful and hurtful to read. And so when under colonial rule, the Indians were, you know, working towards liberation, nonviolent social resistance, social change, like Gandhiji was leading this movement for reclaiming sovereignty and Svadhyaya, self, uh, self-rule, um, Sva self-dhyaya rule. It wasn't just self-rule politically, it was self-rule internally. And so Gandhi used, and the whole, like, the group of nonviolent activists used yoga 
as a re-empowerment for that, that self-rule. And so what happened is the, the yoga teachers, the yoga practitioners heard this narrative, oh, Indians are weak, Indians are feeble. And they said, okay, well, we're going to take this limb, the asana limb, and we're going to beef it up and make it kind of almost militaristic, like really, really strong. Now, yoga has always had within it elements of um, intensity, tapas, right? Strong renunciate practice. But it really early, you know, thousands of years ago, yoga was less focused on asana and more focused on meditation, more focused on like direct path to samadhi, which mm, the body is useful, but more so as a tool, not as the main path. Whereas now under colonization, the body became really important because the body was actually a battleground. And it was a, a place where Indians and Indian teachers, Indian practitioners were reclaiming and refining their power. And so there's that kind of positive element, but then also uh, that was the side of yoga that the British Raj, the British rulers really, that appealed to them. And so that's what they wanted. And then when Indians did come over to the United States, um, which happened first in 1898 with, um, with Vivekananda and the Parliament of World Religions, so a long time ago, that was not an asana-focused yoga. And he actually, although he had, he was embraced, you know, with a very kind of ecumenical, very welcoming worldview of yoga and Vedic systems as these inclusive um, practices for unity of all people. He talked a lot about brotherhood, used the word brotherhood, but we could say like for everyone, right? Really powerful teachings. He was kind of kicked out of the East Coast eventually, had to move to LA. And it was in this the site of, I grew up in LA, so I can affectionately say, you know, like this is, he taught Hollywood stars. He taught people who are so obsessed with the body and with how they looked that you had this kind of perfect storm of, you know, capitalism and lookism and, and image, you know, and um, white supremacy and then physicality that made it so yoga as asana is, is what we have kind of left of all of this richness of what yoga is. And so that's part of why I think for many people, they're like, oh no, this is just yoga, it's fitness. Because that's, you know, for basically a hundred years of yoga being here in the West, that's what we've known. Um, now, many teachers were teaching the other aspects of yoga. It just wasn't as popular. And I think now we're like, oh, wait, the physical is not enough, right? To get through a pandemic where you're isolated at home, who cares if you have, you know, a rock solid butt and like a six pack? Mm. No one cares. Mm -hmm. But what we need is something that can help us with our anxiety, something that can be there on our shoulder, a comforting guide when we're facing the mortality of ourselves or our friends or our loved ones. And that is all available in a full expanse of, of a yoga practice. Yeah. And so let's talk about cultural appropriation, because that's something that come, is coming up a lot. I, I would say even more so recently, as folks are so um, very much like the term, people don't want to be considered racist. They'll always say, I'm not racist. And now being culturally appropriative is something that's being called out very publicly. Um, so what can you tell everyone about what is cultural appropriation and are we doing it when we're practicing yoga? Absolutely. So let's define cultural appropriation first. And for folks listening, you know, you might 
when you hear cultural appropriation, I think we often first think of clothing and um, maybe like jewelry, right? So we can start there within, with thinking of accessories. And so in the yoga context, you might think of a statue, a deity of Ganesh or a deity of Lakshmi or one of the other gods or goddesses placed in a studio as decoration or of mala beads that someone wears to match the yoga outfit or signal that they are a yoga practitioner. And so when we take these these elements of a culture, it's, it has an impact. And so we'll define cultural appropriation as having two criteria. And one is power or power imbalance. And the second is harm. And so cultural appropriation is taking something from a culture that isn't one's own um, when one is in a position of privilege and power over that culture. And then the harm that can be done is you know, it could just be disrespectful, right? Like if the statues were put on the floor or by shoes, it's really disrespectful culturally. Um, for example, when I'm with my family and we're walking like in Venice Beach and there's a, a t-shirt with an Om symbol or a Ganesh holding a cigarette and a gun, you know, like some kind of like Om whatever, like get high and, and find your Om shirt. They often turn to me like, do, they, do, you, do people here not? I understand that these are vehicles to the divine. Like this is not something to just make a joke out of. This is, this is really sacred. Like you wouldn't have a picture of Jesus on a shirt with those paraphernalia, you know, that would not be accepted as, as just something we could do or like go into a church and take the holy water and take the rosaries and, and, or whatever, you know, the, the spiritual implements are and use them as marketing tools or use them how we see fit. We just wouldn't do that. It would feel really disrespectful. People would be upset. And so that's one level of, of harm is the disrespect. But the other is, a, is more insidious and more complex. And that is material, cultural, financial, economic, um, also social and spiritual harm. And so there, for example, if someone, I mean, like with mala beads, if someone goes to India and gets like rudraksha beads, which are like a kind of um, kind of seed that comes from a very spiritual tree and is said to have particular significance, and they get a bunch of these beads and they come back and they put to, you know string together these mala beads and then sell them in their studio for sixty dollars, eighty dollars, one hundred and twenty dollars, right? And they learned how to do this from an artisan and a spiritual teacher in India who they're not giving any of that money back to or any of the, the, they're not saying, I learned this from here. We give 20%, 40%, whatever of our income back. They're just taking um, that teacher is losing out. And the people who, who are from that tradition are losing out. And in, in many ways, honestly, like the true teachers in India are dying out because they just cannot compete in a global marketplace that, puts a price on what they have to offer now. You know, it was always spiritual teachings were recognized and supported, but because of the commercialization, it's harder and harder for them to survive. And so there is real material harm. So cultural appropriation, you know, you can kind of think of it like a doorway into understanding power and oppression, racism and colonialism, because it, it really is just a, a way in to looking at those systems of power and inequity. Susanna, what are you seeing right now in the yoga community? Um, I am a part of 
the community of predominantly, um, let me say it a different way. I, I am a part of the community of folks who recognize that the ways that yoga has been used to um, make money and to cause harm um, and, and just acknowledging and recognizing that we need to reclaim the roots of yoga and um, we need to honor the roots of yoga. So there's an entire um, group of folks who this is uh, important to us. This is what we are passionate about um, as far as decolonizing yoga. So what are you seeing as your work and your teaching and those um, also in the uh, yoga leadership that are on the same mission? What are you seeing in the yoga world right now as, as that is clashing with, you know, what we'll call the capitalist colonizer yoga? Yeah. You know, it's a, actually a really inspiring time. And so I want to, want to say for folks listening, you know, it's like, we're actually at the helm of a huge change and see like a shift in what is happening with yoga today. And what we do now is going to influence the way that yoga is practiced and taught into the future. And there are a lot of incredible things happening. For example, now I've taught and practiced yoga. I practiced since I was a kid, right? Because my family taught me yoga, not asana, but more like ethics. But I've practiced and, and actually formally taught for about two decades, about as long as I've been an educator. And I, for all those years, you know, through the 2000s, through the 90s, the 2000s, um, and then the teens, I was teaching and I would just see my white colleagues who were not any more skillful than I, you know, just to be, to be really frank, like they really weren't, but they were like light earring ahead of me, you know, like getting asked to do festivals, getting asked to do X, Y, Z thing. Right. And so for all these years, I saw myself and a couple other teachers of color, South Asian teachers, like we were really small and, and siloed. And we had people who came to us, we taught as best as we could to, to whoever showed up, but it was like, you know, three people, four people, five people. And this has changed now where we're like, when there are these all white conferences or all white festivals, uh, people are speaking up and saying, where are the, where are the teachers of color? And when I get asked, for example, to teach, cause I, I do now get invitations, not as much as you'd hope, but I do get some, I'm always saying to the person, well, have you considered XYZ person? Have you considered these other amazing folks of color? So that is happening, this ethos of collaboration that's very different than the competitive and individualistic aspect of what yoga used to be. And that's from allies as well, you know, from white folks as well. Some of those teachers who've been teaching for decades who, um, who have had the limelight are like, oh, I see how this is problematic and I'm going to use my privilege to bring in other folks. And, you know, when people ask me, like, I'm white, I'm not Indian, should I teach yoga? I always smile because ultimately I feel like my work is to foster critical thinking and not give people direct answers to questions like that uh, because we've got to come to that answer from within. However, as someone who like, I feel like I am here on this earth to be a steward for the teachings that come from my cultural inheritance. And that is my ancestral wisdom. And my hope more than anything 
is that the depth of that wisdom is preserved for future generations. I don't actually personally feel like the vehicle matters that much. I think as long as we're preserving the heart and breadth of yoga, it can be, you know, I'd rather have a white teacher who is, you know, platforming folks of color, bringing in other Indian voices, bringing out all of the expanse of what yoga is, teaching than not teaching, right? So we, we are all, anyone who's in any way interested in yoga at this time or is practicing or teaching, um, we're part of that change and we need each other. We need to do it. We need to do it together. So I'm seeing a lot of things that make me hopeful. Of course, I'm still seeing things that are um, that are challenging, but what I'm also seeing is I'm not the only one speaking up now, you know, or me and a, a, bit, a handful of like, yoga misfits on the, on the outside. The yoga misfits are, are becoming the cool kids. And, you know, that's a that's an interesting shift to all of a sudden go from outsider status to insider to some extent. And I think also a really important shift as we, as we you know, for any of us who remember high school dynamics, I, I was there too, one of the outsiders, but there was one year in ninth grade, one of my friends, I don't even know, it was in homeroom. She like, Took, she's like, I want to take you and give you a makeover. I was super um, kind of stud-like. And so she curled my hair, put on makeup, and uh, took pictures. And then we, I came to school the next day, like, and everyone loved me. And I like had a couple of weeks of, of popularity until I realized, like, that's not me, you know? But when I, because what I found when I became on the inside, inside click was people were not very nice and they were playing out hierarchies that were really harmful to themselves and each other. And so as those of us who have been on the margins come into some part of the center, right? Or we shift the center, our job is to expand it, expand it, expand it, expand it till there's no, there's no difference between the margins and the center where they're that, where we really are including everyone. And so it's not about just creating new yoga celebrities that are folks of color, although that's great, you know, but that we don't stop there. And I am seeing this trend of um, real collaboration and community and uplift and accessibility. That's, that's a very inspiring and very much rooted in the heart of what yoga is today. You know, listening to you is such a honor for me. I, and I spend a lot of time doing it. Like I said, I've been following you for a long time, um, not only on social media, but also um, following your blog that you have, SusannaBarkataki.com. And we'll talk about that a little bit um, more later. Um, but I also, you have a tremendous amount of offerings online. Um, so one of what one of the things that I have participated in recently is your honor don't appropriate yoga, um, the online course. And so I get to listen to you and learn all of these things. And it's such a joy that I'm able to share this with our Speaking of Racism audience. Um, I'm hoping that this conversation is blowing people's minds. I hope that it's making them think about yoga in a way that they have never considered it before. And I hope it's asking, it's causing them to ask questions, like you said. What we want to facilitate on this podcast is critical thinking and to question the things that we have always, we've been programmed and socialized to believe and accept and agree to um, at the expense of folks in the margin, right? So mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about where what you're doing now, how people can follow you, learn from you, connect with you, and get the book. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes. I'm so excited to talk about those things. So 
One of the questions I get asked a lot is about namaste, the, the greeting when you place your hands together and say, you know, namaste and, and um, bow either at the beginning or at the end of class. And so I've recorded a masterclass called Namaste Masterclass for folks. It's free um, that you can just look up at, at that web address, Namaste Masterclass, and, and learn a little bit more about when it's appropriate to say, where, why you might want to consider not saying it at the end of class. And um, I also have a blog on, on that on my website. So that's something I'm really passionate about. Right now, I'm recording another educational webinar on a spiritual lineage acknowledgement, which will kind of sit alongside land acknowledgements that are really important to do um, when we're practicing or teaching or in any way involved in a yoga event, right? So if it's a festival or a workshop or even a yoga class, as the teacher, I feel it is our responsibility to the lineage, to the tradition, to acknowledge the roots of where this practice comes from. It's one way we can be humble, whether we are from the tradition, like from Indian or not, we can say uh, a spiritual lineage acknowledgement. So you can check that out. I'll have that um, available also probably on my website or on Instagram. I often post a lot of instigating things on Instagram at my name, Susanna Barkataki. Dot com. I like to ask questions and, um, and provoke conversation. And then finally, like you mentioned, Tina, the Honor Yoga's Roots course is really my main way of continuing to educate and go deeper on all of the topics that we've touched on, like go deep into the yoga philosophy, deeper into critical thinking and addressing cultural appropriation and avoiding it. And also becoming empowered through a practice, a deep practice of yoga, as to how we can then share with appropriate leadership in the world with yoga. And then the book, Honor Yoga's Roots, Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice, should be out really soon or right when this podcast comes out. And that goes through all of what we've talked about as well, you know, has like examples and stories and um, really it's a book to be read perhaps not all at once but in chunks there's reflection questions action invitations it's a book to come back to to revisit goes through separation reflection reconnection and liberation right so it's a whole journey and um, hopefully will serve those who want to really honor yoga's roots for years to come and I had the opportunity to read um, a part, a little bit of the book in as we are looking forward to it being launched and released. And I truly believe that if anyone is considers themselves to be a practitioner of yoga, whether you are a teacher or a student, if you love this practice, I think this is required reading. I think this should be a part of not only every... Um, yoga studio um, and everybody's library. I think that it needs to be a part of yoga teacher trainings. Um, it, it is such a tremendous resource and I'm thrilled that you have written it because we need it. We really, really need it. So um, Susanna, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me and to share all of this wisdom and just um, just your heart for yoga with with me and our audience. Thank you. You're so welcome. And my wish for everyone who listens to this is that you experience more liberation, more joy, and deeper, fuller breath 
for yourself and that when you experience that for yourself, you're inspired to take that out and create more equity and more breath and more freedom for the communities around you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.